as we go through Luke, I'm aware that sometimes for the sake of continuing to go through it, that some sections don't line up in a nice, pretty way as to make an entire subject. And there will be times when we'll have to take separate subjects and look at them, but they're not gonna, I'm not gonna slam them together and try to make some kind of neat package out of them when, when it's not there. I don't think that's really um, an honest thing to do with the text. You never push the text or bend it or make it do what you want it to do. And so sometimes as a pastor, I've got a temptation to make it all, you know, packaged and pretty and it's all means one thing that all starts with the letter P. I don't believe in that. So we're going to look at three kind of separate things, a little bit unrelated. But we're still going to learn about Jesus, okay? Now the first section is about John being faithful to preach to everybody and somebody doesn't like it and takes offense and stops his work. In the second section, Jesus is baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit as he is praying. And then at the end of the chapter, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to the first man, Adam. There's a number of things we can learn from a genealogy. So let's read the first part from verse 18. And it's talking about John the Baptist. And it says, And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. So the first issue we looked at here is that John is faithful to his calling to preach, and because of it, he is shut down in his ministry. Now he's preaching with power to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. And the people listen to him, and they respond by repenting. They change their mind so that it affects their lives. They take John's words to heart and they're in expectation and waiting for the Messiah. And in this, John even reproves Herod Antipas. And I'm calling him Antipas. We've got to keep him straight. There's so many guys in the Bible named Herod. You need a scorecard to keep them separate. And even look at his wife, Herodias. I tell you, some guys are just stuck on themselves, all right? And Herod and the whole family. You know, Josephus, the Jewish historian, made a point to say this family was so wicked that at a certain point, every one of them was destroyed. They wiped themselves out. That was for free. Now, getting back to this, John rebukes Herod Antipas 
publicly, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now look at this. Antipas was staying with his brother Philip, who was married to his niece, Herodias. And Antipas fell in love with Herodias, and Herodias was a social climber. She wanted to be married to a tetrarch. So she says, I want you to divorce your wife. And so he divorced his wife, who happened to be the daughter of Aretas IV, king of the Nabataeans. And it led to a war, and it led to his army getting wiped out. And all the Jews looked at that and said, you know what? It's because of what he did to John the Baptist. Now, this is written down by Josephus in the first century. He was a contemporary of Jesus. So there was other wicked things that Antipas did besides adultery, besides divorce, but they're not mentioned here. And here's John being faithful. He is warning Antipas about the wrath to come. Even tetrarchs and kings and government officials are subject to the judgment of God and the wrath of God. And he's saying to Antipas, you need to repent and show your repentance by your life. And you might think that there are people that you shouldn't share with. You know, they're too big. They're my boss. They're the government. They're too wicked. And we think, well, that guy will never become a Christian. He would ne never make a good Christian. So maybe not even risk it. But you know, everyone is, is a sinner. Everyone needs Jesus. And that's why we share with the NHS when we have a chance. Because they're doctors, there's nurses, they're intelligent, they're educated, and they don't know Jesus. They're under the condemnation of God. They're lost. And, you know, I got to share with street repairers the other day. Our street kind of looks like a tribute to Ukraine. <laughs> and we drive like drunk people trying to miss the potholes. And I looked out there this week, and there were street repairers. You know, big guys the size of Land Rovers out there arms as thick as watermelons, and they're, even the women, and they're fixing the road. And I just wanted to say thank you. And they noticed my accent and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm working for God. And one of them said, oh, you think we need Jesus? And I said, I know you need Jesus. <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It got quiet out there. 
And one of them made a polite noise, and I knew we were done. <laughs> but it's amazing what happens when you take that little shot and you just say John 3.16. And you know what? Street repairers need Jesus. Just like the cashier at the grocery store and the, the cashier where you fill up your car and everywhere you go, you probably have 30 seconds to give them John 3.16. Now, you know, Antipas needs salvation like a street repairer. Doesn't matter that he's the tetrarch and the government and all that. Even prime ministers need salvation. That's why we pray for the government and parliament. See, we're doing an important work on Tuesday nights. And rather than complain, you can do something practical about it. Now, Anipus, he's big and he's tough. And he's used to having his own way. And throwing God's word behind his back is not new for him. So he just has his guys go out there and arrest him. He just arrested the forerunner of the Messiah and throws him in prison. Like that. And that's it. John is done. Now, I don't like this. You don't like this. This is God's work, right? This is the most important thing going on the planet. And you'd think that God would supernaturally look out for John, give him protection, break Herod's legs, you know. And he doesn't. And we go, you mean he gets locked up and that's it? You know, God does spring people out of jail sometimes, and sometimes he doesn't. And it's up to him. Jesus said, everybody who follows me is going to suffer persecution. And we see here that he is right. Jesus did not promise his followers a magic life without suffering. But here are some things we can take away from this. Do you know that God does not require us to be successful? All he wants from us is to be faithful. And evangelism is not about winning a debate. And knowing the secret judo technique to flop your opponent on his back. We're not selling a product. All you have to do is sign this and you're done. You can leave now. We are just telling people. And we're telling them regardless of how they receive it. That's not on us. You know that only God can open hearts. And it really is up to him. Even if it takes 18 years. See? That's on God. All he's calling us to do is to come out with it. And so, 
You don't take it personally when somebody shuts you down for talking about Jesus. Just be faithful and keep giving out John 3.16. You also don't have to be scared to talk about Jesus when the Lord gives you an opportunity. You know, you, you ask Jesus to give you courage and love for that person. Help me to love this doctor. Help me to love this street repairer. Because I found that when you're loving people, you're not scared because you're not thinking about yourself. You're just thinking, you poor guy. You poor educated person. You poor guy with arms like watermelons. How do you get them that way anyway? But I mean, I'm not scared of you. Because I actually have compassion on you. And I'm not going to tell a street repairer this, but I love you. He could take it wrong. But I will tell him John 3.16 and not worry about it because it's amazing. They all get quiet. You know, that happened when I, I was in the bar. I was in a pub um, playing an open mic. And instead of just playing music, I thought I would do a rap. Hey, here's a 3,000-year-old Hebrew poem I wake up with every day. And I recited Psalm 23. Same thing happens. Super quiet in a pub, I'll tell you that. Wow. You see, there is power in the Word of God. And you know, Charles Spurgeon said, you don't defend a lion. You just let the lion out of its cage. The lion's going to do its work. So all you do is just give out the word of God and let it do its work. That's all we're supposed to do. Now, these people look tough. They're intimidating. So what? They're still lost. And so you love them and have compassion on them. Now, you know what? People get to oppose God and reject the gospel and look smart and funny and get in the last word and the zinger and make you feel like a dope. They get to do that now. So you just forgive them. Brush the dust off your clothes and go find somebody else because nothing can stop the judgment of God. Did you know that? They can't postpone it. Antipas couldn't postpone judgment. Let them talk. Let's see what happens in 200 years. How tough they are. Snazzy zingers. You know, that's not going to really do anything in front of God. Nobody is going to have some smart aleck thing to say to God. And that's why everybody needs Jesus. Now, here's one more thing to take away from this, and this is about our own hearts. And that is, beware of imitating Antipas and not listening to conviction. Because you always need to be convicted about your sins. 
Never harden your heart. If you stop listening to this conviction, then you're not going to make judgment go away. You're going to harden your heart. That is dangerous. Now, conviction is humbling. It's embarrassing, isn't it? I don't like it either. I would like to think I'm a better person than I really am. But I'm not. And you know, if you just take it on board and say, yes, it's humbling, but I'm going to listen every time, you know what? It's really going to be embarrassing to endure everlasting shame and contempt. And you don't want to go there. So a little bit of temporary embarrassment now to keep your heart soft is absolutely necessary. Do not avoid that conviction for your sins. Now look at the second part here in verse 21. It says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Now, obviously, John baptized Jesus before he got arrested, right? So we've kind of, kind of tied up John the Baptist, and now we're switching our focus to Jesus. And you know, all the three Gospels, what we call the synoptic Gospels, because they give us a similar look at Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this event, Jesus getting baptized, but they emphasize different things about it. And this is the importance of having these synoptic Gospels. They bring out different facts. Now, Matthew brings out the fact that when Jesus went to John to get baptized, John was a little reluctant. He felt unworthy. He says, you know what? I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? And Jesus said, permitted at this time, we need to fulfill all righteousness. Mark shows that Jesus left Nazareth to be baptized. That was the first official act of his ministry. And so this baptism was not for repentance. I hope everybody gets that. Baptism is a symbol that means you are identifying with what you're baptized into. You take on that characteristic. Now, John was preaching, you have to repent. And people were being baptized for repentance. They're saying, this is what I need. I need to repent. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn with all my heart and mind and body towards God. But Jesus is being baptized for a different reason. That is, he is identifying with sinners as the Son of Man. 
He's identifying with sinners in everything they've done wrong, everything they've omitted to do, and all the sins they've committed. And he's also identifying with sinners in order to fulfill all righteousness and to fulfill all their punishment for disobedience. As though he is representing before God every single person who has ever lived. Now, only Luke shows us that Jesus prayed at his baptism. And Luke specifically shows us many instances where Jesus prayed. He focuses on Jesus' prayer life. And if you think about what prayer is, then you're going to know why Jesus prayed. Because part of prayer is worship. And worship is more than just saying words like, praise you, Lord. Worship means you present yourself to God for service. Because worship is service, and service is worship. They are synonymous. And so it's not just, you know, flowery phrases and well-put-together words. It's also your entire life. You might jump very high on Sunday. How straight do you walk on Monday? 24 hours a day, you should say, okay, God, you're worthy of everything I am and all that I have. And so behold your bondservant. That's what worship is. And remember, this is Jesus' first official act as Messiah. And he is offering himself as the servant of God, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 42. The servant of God, the bond slave who will accomplish all of God's will. So that could be one thing that Jesus is praying about. Another part of prayer is thanksgiving. You acknowledge all of God's goodness toward you. You're aware of it so that you can thank God. You know when somebody does something nice for you and you don't acknowledge it? It is insulting. They don't notice. They expect you to be their personal slave. You should have emptied the dishwasher. You needed to hoover the house. You know, but you don't get any thanks or acknowledgement for it. It's insulting. So here's Jesus. He is acknowledging all of God's goodness. Aware of it. And especially, even the bad things. Because Jesus knows he's going to suffer. And yet he can look at all of that that he knows is coming and he gives God thanks. Because everything Jesus is going to do is as the servant of God. 
But see, God is going to work all things together for good. He knows this, and he's thanking God even right now. Thank you. Thank you that nothing can stop you, Heavenly Father. Thank you that I am yours. I am your bond slave. Part of prayer is adoration. An emotional part. And, you know, sometimes we get a little critical of emotional or emotions in the worship because people can kind of use it like a drug and kind of whip themselves up and kind of get on a high in emotion and all that kind of stuff. And again, it's kind of bubbly and frothy, but a lot of times it doesn't translate into this affection and connection with God. The emotional thing is really important, and it's part of being a godly person. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. With the whole person, and that means your emotions, and there's an emotional attachment that is okay. It should be there. This is not a business where we punch in and say, okay, God, praise you. That's what I'm supposed to do until... I'm punched out and go home and just watch, you know, Star Trek. I'm done. But you know, this is the sort of thing that involves the entire person, 24 hours a day. My heart says, your will, oh God, is written on my heart. I delight in doing your will. There's an emotion there and a bond. That's where my heart is at. Now, Jesus is not taking God's will and his own will and seeing if he can't average it out somewhere. Kind of God, kind of his own thing, but kind of God. The human heart isn't big enough for that. You can only have one master. You're going to hate one and love the other, see? Jesus is unbelievably all for God with all his heart. And this is part of what he's praying, this fabulous, all my life is yours. I delight to do your will, oh my God. And you know, part of prayer is answering your phone. And then you take that phone and throw it right on the ground and say, get behind me, Satan. Part of prayer is making request. We call it supplication. And really, this is like being helpless before God. Now, you think, well, Jesus is God, right? Jesus always knows what to say. He always knows what to do. He's the most capable guy on the planet and the universe and all time. And Jesus is praying? Jesus is also the perfect man. Perfect and therefore completely dependent upon God. And he doesn't resent that. 
He's into it. He goes, yes. My Father in heaven hears my prayers. And I can do nothing apart from him. And so I delight to do his will. And I say, God, you got to show me what to say. you got to show me what to do. Because he's the perfect man, the perfect servant. He glories in being helpless and dependent upon God. That's why he's praying. You know one thing about prayer that he's not doing? He is not confessing his sins. That's what you and me do, but not him. Because there's no conflict in him. There's no little tiny thing about wishing he could just get married and settle down and have a nice family and a picket fence and all that stuff. He doesn't care. You know what? He is there 100% for God. And he's saying, all that I am, all that I have, I present it to you. I am your servant, the Son of Man. And that's when God responds and the heavens are opened. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon him in the form of a dove and rests upon him. And the Father actually speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is fabulous. You know, God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. That's what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. And here's someone who is so utterly yielded to him that the Father is delighted. What a fabulous relationship. Jesus delighting in the Father. The Father delighting in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit given to delight even in Jesus' inmost person. To enable him to do a perfect work of salvation. You know that dove has been a symbol of peace ever since the flood. Noah's Ark. And here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to establish the will of God and make peace. And he looks at us with all of our dependence on ourselves. And the way we hate feeling helpless. And how we distrust God. And we don't want to seek his will. And our ingratitude for all the good things that God is doing. And our emotional detachment. In our ambivalence, we're conflicted. Yeah, I want to obey God, but yeah, I want to do my thing too. We kind of walk wobbly and unsteady. And Jesus says to the Father, you know what? They're so lost. They're so lost. 
They're hurting and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Father, do all your goodwill. Please use me. Please let me save them. Please enable me. Please do all your goodwill through me. And God says, yes, I will. That's what's happening here. And then we get a genealogy. This is like the ride just ended and the railing comes up and says, please take your belongings now and enter, exit at the door. You think, a genealogy? Now? What are we going to do with the genealogy? Because nobody sleeps when I'm teaching. Well, first of all, you want to notice it's an unbroken line that goes back to Adam, the first man. And you notice that this genealogy is different from Matthew chapter 1. Has everybody noticed that? When you read through the Bible, you've got two different genealogies, and you think, what is going on here? And here's what's going on. In Matthew chapter 1, it is Joseph's genealogy. Because it says quite clearly who his father was. And you can trace his genealogy back through all the kings of Judah till you get to David. And then Matthew traces it back further to Abraham and leaves it. And he makes a point about saying all the generations from Abraham to David is 14 generations. David to the captivity is 14 generations. From the captivity to Jesus is 14 generations. Okay, that's one point to make. But do you notice that this goes all the way back to Adam? Now, it's not... Joseph's genealogy. Can we just come out and say that? Joseph is descended from David, and as such, he inherits the promise that God made to David. One of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. And some people make the point that this inheritance is through the Father. Okay, the promise could pass on to Jesus as his adopted son. Okay, but then you got this other genealogy. And you notice in verse 23, it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, what you have here is really Mary's genealogy. Because Luke is telling us in so many words that we know that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. It was supposed he was Joseph's son. They didn't go into that. But really, 
Mary also is descended from David. And the reason we know this is that it fulfills the promise of God in 2 Samuel 7 that from David's body would come the Messiah. And it's the same terminology used when God made the promise to Abraham. One who comes from your own body will be your heir. You know, God waited until it was impossible. Abraham was 99 years old. He was not going to have kids, humanly speaking. God always intended for that son of Abraham to be miraculous, life out of death. And he means it the same way here. It was physically impossible for Mary to have a child without a human father. God always intended for there to be a miraculous birth to bring his son into the world so that Jesus is physically descended from David. Miraculously. So God is fulfilling his promise literally through Mary. And again, here we have an unbroken genealogy that goes back like 75 generations all the way to Adam. Unbroken. One thing, you look at that and you go, that is God. God is the one sovereignly who says, I want an unbroken line from Adam to Jesus. 75 times where somebody could say, you know what, I just don't feel like having kids. I'm an artist. I just want to devote myself to my art, and I don't care about having kids. I don't even want to get married. All it takes is one accident like that. There goes the line. Or, okay, you have to fight. I don't want to fight. Get out there. Okay, you're dead. There goes the line. 75 times, God says, no, I'm going to watch over this. I have a point to make. You see, Adam is the first man, the beginning. Everybody came from Adam. But there's a problem. Adam sinned. And he fell. And he disobeyed God. And that blows up everything. Every person since Adam is a sinner, is conflicted. Even the best people in this genealogy had to deal with the fact that, okay, I want to follow God, but sometimes I don't want to. And when they didn't follow God, it was horrible. So the point is, all men are born sinners because of Adam. Already dead in sins and transgressions. Jesus is different. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, Paul says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Everybody 
descended from Adam, is going to die. No controversy here. And you can't argue. And yet, Jesus ends the history of Adam, brings it to an end. And by his resurrection from the dead, he begins a new history of man in which everyone in Christ lives forever. So here we have Adam, and then we get to Jesus, and Paul calls him the last Adam. Aren't going to be any more Adams. No more beginnings. He is the beginning. Right there. Of a new history and a new race. Now, some people say, well, it's not fair. I was made a sinner because Adam sinned. You know? I don't think that's fair. I didn't ask to be born and made a sinner. Well, the same principle works in Christ. That if you are in Christ, everything about Jesus becomes true of you. You are dead to sin. You're dead to your old life. And you have the power of a new life, a new creation. So that's not fair either. That's more than fair. That is unbelievable grace. So I'm okay with that. If I can get out of being an Adam and be in Jesus, I'm doing okay. So are you. So right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's identifying with sinful man in order to make a new beginning. That's what's happening in this genealogy. So, you know what? You don't need to be famous. Just need to be faithful. Do you notice how everybody in this genealogy up to about David, Adam to David, they're all famous people. We've read about them in the Bible. Patriarchs, prophets, kings. Well, king, there's only one, David. And then with David's son, Nathan, a bunch of guys you've never heard of. Famous, 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 unknown, 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 unknown. Who are they? All they did was grow up, have a family, and die. And then grow up, have a family, and die. Have a son. Really? You don't need to be famous. Just faithful. You know, God gives it to some to be famous. And then he gives it to other people to be obscure and unknown. And all that matters is what God thinks of you. Maybe God calls you to rule a nation. Great. Maybe he calls you to raise a family. It's just as good. Because here's 40 or more generations of unknown fathers raising their sons to be able to marry and raise sons. That's pretty good. Right there, that's difficult. You try that and see if your kids' lives are going to work out. That's amazing. That's a miracle. Forty times or more, God does that, 
And they served God by raising their families, and they didn't even know they were in the line of the Messiah. You know, like, straighten up, Jacob. You're in the line of the Messiah, and if you don't watch out. All they did was say, God, help me with this kid. This kid's going to kill me. Why don't you kill him? I mean, straighten him out. Help him to grow up straight. Can you do that? You got to do that. Because he's going to kill me. And lo and behold, it's a miracle. He did it. Wow. Well, to be faithful, you got to receive Jesus first. Does everybody get that? And then be his new creation. Be transformed. And then you pray. And it's okay to be helpless. Does everybody get that? I think that's what keeps us from being, from praying, because we don't like being helpless. That faces me every morning, Monday to Friday, and every Tuesday night, anytime I got to pray, I pray and I go, I hate the helplessness. But then when you get past it and you say, Yes, I'm helpless. I embrace it. I am helpless. Here I am. God becomes everything. That is amazing. And you know that God is well pleased when you rely fully upon Him. He is pleased. That's what He's looking for. This is your rational and spiritual service of worship. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that that you blessed Jesus so much with your presence. And I thank you that you bless us with your presence. Thank you that we can go from being sinners to being righteous, from being dead to being alive. As simple as receiving Jesus. And we pray, Lord, to keep receiving you in our hearts. Please do a great work in each one of our lives. And please help us to be okay with being helpless as we look to you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.